All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Redemption Church. If you're new here, if you don't know who I am, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and I'll be sharing with you this morning. Uh, but before we jump in, let's just take a moment and, and pray together. Father, we just thank you for this day. Uh, it's on my, my mind this morning that Psalm 118 says that this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you for this day. We thank you that you've made it. We thank that thankful that it has purpose and that ultimately it was made to glorify you. We, we ask, Father, that this day we would be a part of that, that we would intentionally glorify you, that we would be here raising the name of Jesus high, that we would uh, hear the gospel and that our hearts and lives would be changed so we'd be made more like you, so that we would be able to proclaim your excellencies to those who are lost and to each other. Father, I pray this morning that as I speak, you would, uh, it would be your words that you would speak, um, that our ears would hear what you'd have us hear, that each heart would be uh, in touch or touched by the Holy Spirit, that we'd be strengthened to comprehend what is the love of Christ. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so uh, when I was in high school, I really hated any math classes. I don't know if you, I mean, most people either hate math and science or they hate like literature and arts and stuff. Well, I, I despised math. I, I didn't like it at all, uh, especially algebra. That's as far as I got. I just didn't even go beyond that. But my disdain for algebra class wasn't helped at all by uh, just the, the environment that I was in in high school. It was the last class of the day at Richmond Academy. Often the air conditioner was broke and it was blazing hot in there. We had these old wooden desks that were like, really big seats, and I had like a nice big wooden desk. It was kind of nice and cool with a, had the inkwell thing in it. Anyways, and I'd often just fall asleep in there because I was tired and I didn't care because I didn't like math. As a matter of fact, at the end of the, the year, when I got my yearbook at Richmond Academy, one of my friends in the class wrote in there, I'm really glad you woke up at the end of the semester so I could get to know you. <laughs> I was asleep a lot. I'm not proud of that. I'm just telling you the truth. I didn't like math. It wasn't something I really got into, and, uh, and I fell asleep a lot. See, math just, like, never clicked for me, right? I could, I could understand the information. It's not that I couldn't do it. It's just that it was boring, and I, I wasn't interested, and I didn't think it really was going to be that useful in life. I probably wasn't going to use it every day. I wasn't going into some field that would require math. I didn't really need it. And in my young, immature Somewhat stupid head. Most of it, most of the math just had no real world application for me. So I just didn't care for it. Of course, later I got into residential construction and there's a lot of math involved in that. And then I found out that I needed to learn it and I kind of had to relearn a whole bunch of stuff. But my point is that I think that it's that way with the gospel too, right? Because there's a lot of things that we can just kind of, we get it. But sometimes we don't see how it actually works in the everyday stuff of life. Now, over the last year or so, year and a half at Redemption Church, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been here any time, you know this. But specifically over the last few weeks, we've been, you know, reading through uh, the road to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and we've seen those events. And, and over the last couple of weeks, we've actually moved pretty quickly as we just kind of read the story of what happened. 
But Matthew's, uh, Matthew, as we've seen, has told us how Jesus entered Jerusalem, that he had set course for the cross. We've talked about that a lot, that Jesus had foretold and was foretelling his own death and resurrection several times along the way. And over the course of a week, from Sunday to Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples. He was sentenced. He was crucified. He was buried. And he rose from the grave. And it all happened in one week. And so we kind of went through this stuff really, really quickly because it all happened in one week. And, the ne- and, and next week, we're going to close out Matthew. We're going to be done with it. Brent's going to spend some time in the Great Commission. Um, but for this week, because we went through it quickly, because there was a lot that happened in that week, I just wanted to take a pause, some time to reflect, and try to digest what we just read over the last couple weeks. So we're just going to kind of reflect and try to digest, right? Also, over the last week or so, I've been spending a lot of time in the Psalms. We're planning a series, a summer series in Psalms. We're going to do the Songs of Ascent. That's Psalm uh, 120 through 134. Just so you know, we're going to be we're going to be going there. So I've been spending some time in those Psalms, and while I'm spending time in the Psalms, I like to listen to Shane and Shane's album called Psalms. If you're not familiar, Shane and Shane is a group of worship leader, a couple guy worship leaders. They have an album called Psalms, too, because they have another one called Psalms. And it's just a bunch of psalms where they've kind of um, just re- rewrote the psalms and composed several chapters of psalms. None of those songs on the album have anything to do with the, the chapters that I'm at, that I've been looking at in psalms, but it just makes sense. I'm looking at psalms, I'm going to play some, some music from psalms. Um, but anyways, so this paraphrase uh, is, is from their song, uh, Psalms 43. They, they re wrote and composed a song called Psalms 43. It's based on Psalms 43, and there's just this paraphrase. It just really hit me this week, and I just want to share it. It says, it says, the oceans roar, the oceans roar. You are the Lord of all, the one who calms the wind and waves and makes my heart be still. See, I was listening to this on the way back from Columbia, South Carolina this week. I had like a meeting up there. I'm coming back, and I'm listening to this song and I, remember, I hear this, though oceans roar, you are the Lord of all, the one who calms the wind and waves and makes my heart be still. And I was listening to that song, I was reminded of who God really is, that he's sovereign, that he's in control, and I was comforted, and sure enough, my heart was made still. The anxieties that I'd wrestled with through the week, I'd been wrestling with my own inadequacy, like in just about every role that I feel in life, but it just stopped, it just ceased as I heard the gospel, as I heard the good news of who God was, that he calms the waves and makes my heart be still. He's in control and he's sovereign. I knew my God was in control, that I wasn't in control, and that as a child of God, through the person and work of Jesus, I could be sure, like Reggie talked about last week, that my work was not in vain. I was free to be still and taste and see that the Lord is good. I bring this up because I just, as I've been in the Psalms, I'm just noticing that the psalmists, they're doing this throughout the whole book of Psalms, right? They're singing praises to God for who he is and for his salvation. And as a matter of fact, like lovers of God are singing God's praises for who he is and for his salvation all over the Old Testament before Jesus, And so the question for me is, like, where were they going? (laughs) What were they going on that made them believe that God was who he says he is 
and that they could rejoice in his salvation. I mean, I have Christ and you have Christ. We have, we have Jesus. What did they have to go on? Well, they had God's promises. They had God's promises and they had some evidence that, that he was faithful and that he was, he was doing a work that he said he would do. They had some promises. They had some evidence that came before him. They could look back and remember how God had led the people of Israel out of captivity from Egypt. They could see how they had been given the promised land, right? They could see how God had blessed them when it was obvious that they only deserved the curse of death. All of these things were things that pointed toward God restoring the world. They all pointed to that he was going to fulfill his promise of salvation. And they trusted that he was faithful and just to make good on his promise for salvation. It's just stunning to me. It's stunning what they say about God and how they trusted him even before Christ. That's stunning to me. They had faith that God was who he said he was and that he would make good on his promises. In Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, it's the, the faith hall of fame, right? But at the beginning, it just says 11, this is Hebrews 11, 1 through 2. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. I bring all this up because, like I said, through this season, as we've gone through the Holy Week and as we've seen Jesus come into Jerusalem and be betrayed by his own and go to the cross and be buried, and die, you know, die and be rose, risen again, and be rose from the grave. As we've heard that story, and we've talked about what it means for us. As Reggie referenced again last week in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, it means for us that we can be steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our work is not in vain. But I just think that the danger for us is to go through this season, to get through the story again, and kind of understand salvation by grace through faith, maybe just a little bit off. We know that Jesus is the only way to God and eternal life. We can get that. And that he came for us as an act as an act of grace, that we cannot do anything to earn what he's given to us. It's kind of like me in algebra class, though. We can get that. We get that he came, that he lived, that he died, that, he, yeah, fine, it happened. And it has some implications for us in eternity, and it has something to do with sin that we can't earn, but, you know, he can, he can provide forgiveness for it. But what does it mean to place our faith in Jesus? Is it merely consenting to the fact that Jesus was really God? that he really did come, that these things really did happen, that he really did rise again? If we're just willing to say that that happened, if we're just willing to say, yeah, fine, it really happened, is that, that's all there is to faith? Is that what belief means? That's the questions I'm up against. But I don't think it lines up well with these psalms, with the psalmists and what they say, and what Abraham and Moses and David and the other saints of the Old Testament, it doesn't line up with their faith quite right. Sure, they believed that God would provide salvation, but they had no idea about the details. They didn't know what it would look like. Their belief, their faith, the faith that picked up families and moved them into the middle of nowhere, that built a landlocked ark, right, that led a few into battle against many that stood against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Their faith was built on being a witness to the character of God. Their faith was built on being witness to the character of God and believing that God was who he said he was and that his character was what he said it was. 
And it didn't just seal eternity for them. Salvation wasn't just about that. And faith wasn't just sealing eternity for them. It changed everything about their life. It changed how they spent their influence. Their faith had implications for the everyday of their life. What they were really believing was something about who God is and what he's about. Now, Colossians 1.15 says this. It says that he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So from that, we can, just, we can take this, that what did Christ do? Who is Christ? What does he do? He showed us what God is like, and he proved it. He's the exact image of the invisible God. He shows us exactly what God is like, and he proves it. I'm saying all this because I think that we don't really struggle to believe that, that the story, I mean, some people do, for sure, but I don't think that we necessarily struggle to believe that the story that Matthew just laid out is true. We don't struggle to believe that all this is true, that all of this actually happened. The struggle comes in the day-to-day in remembering and being able to apply the gospel to the everyday stuff of life. What is the good news? What's the gospel? It's that Jesus has proven God to be who he always said he was. And he has done what he said he would do in going out for our salvation. The gospel is that Jesus has proven that God is who he said he was and that he's done what he said he would do in going out for our salvation. So we can have faith that God is who he says he is, that he does what he said he would do, right? That he says he will do. He's proven it through Christ. And it doesn't just seal eternity for us. It doesn't just seal eternity for you. Salvation is not just about eternity. It changes everything about your life forever. From now into forever. It changes everything about your life and how you, in, how you spend your influence in the world and in the roles that you are in. With that in mind, just briefly this morning as we reflect and try to digest what's just happened in the gospel. As we seek to reflect and digest what's just happened through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, I just want to look at what Christ proved. What did Christ prove about God through these events and how How can we begin to let it change how we live our everyday lives and spend our influence? I think it's Tim Chester who wrote this. It's the four G's. I didn't come up with it, so you can't blame me for being cheesy by using G's or whatever, but uh, but it's really good. I think it's Tim Chester who came up with it. Some of you may have come across it because it's in Gospel Basics, which is a Saturate uh, curriculum, and some of I, I know some of our MCs have used that. So this morning I just want to talk a little bit about the four G's. The four G's are the four things that Christ proved about God that I want us to look at today. God, these are four things that Christ proved about God, about who God is. God is gracious. God is good. God is great. God is glorious. You use a lot of those when you're trying to make a quick prayer, right? God is gracious. God is good. God is great. And God is glorious. And there's an implication for each of these. And these are listed in the discussion questions of your, of your bulletin, so you can take it home and you can hopefully reference it again. God is gracious, so that means we don't have to prove ourselves. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. And God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Like when I encountered these four Gs, I really just fell in love with them because it made it really easy to have some language to like help bring the gospel into my, into my life and like easy to have something to go back and ask questions of. 
I love the four G's. It just makes it simple to answer the question of what is the good news. So I remember early in our marriage, in Claire and I's marriage, not like I have a marriage with somebody else, right? In our marriage, you know who that is. So uh, anyways, <laughs> I remember early in our marriage that the first year of our marriage, I lost my job. I wasn't in school. I just didn't have a lot going for me all of a sudden. I was feeling pretty inadequate. I was feeling pretty down. I was driving to work every day pretty much to, to Jackson, South Carolina to work at like this hole-in-the-wall pizza place that my mom was the manager at. So she got me a job, and there was a little bit of money. And it was, on, it was one day on the way back in town from Jackson. I was driving home, just feeling pretty low, feeling like God was pretty distant, like he must not care, like, I w- like he'd given up on me. And this song came on. It was by Cayman's Call. I had it on a CD, and it was going. And this line... I'm just referencing a lot of songs today, so you're just going to have to deal with it, I guess. Cayman's Call, this is like 15 years ago. Anyways, it comes on the, the, the stereo, and, and the lyric just said this. It said, they say that I can find you in a flower, but I need you in the car. They say that I can find you in a flower, but I need you in, a car, in the car. And it resonated with me, and it stuck with me. Because that's how the gospel felt at the moment. That's how God felt. Like I I knew that Jesus died and that he rose again and that I was forgiven and that I would spend eternity with him in heaven. I I got that. I could could deal with that. But, But what I really wanted and what I really needed was to know how what he did affected me right then. How what Jesus did affected me right now in the here and now. And I felt like it was distant and I didn't know how to translate it. How did what Jesus do affect me right now in this life, in the midst of the brokenness that I live in? That's what I want for us. That's what I'm trying to get at today, is to know the gospel. I want us to know the gospel and to understand the good news so that it's not just some, like, ethereal idea, but so that it impacts our lives daily and in the everyday stuff of life. Gospel basics. Look, if you guys want to go through that with your MC, it's really good stuff, so they're going to say a lot of the stuff I'm saying here, but... What it's, it's so helpful to help us understand the good news so that it is not just some idea, but it impacts our lives daily, tangibly, and in the everyday stuff of life. So today I just want to spend the next few minutes looking at these four G's a little closer to see what Jesus proved about who God is, that he's, good, that he's gracious, that he's good, that he's great, and that he's glorious. And I want to talk about what that means for us every day. And then maybe how we can do this on our own and with each other. So we'll just jump right in. The first G is God is gracious. You know, Paul says, in, says this in Romans 3, 23 through 24. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's just a couple things I want us to pick up on here. What did Jesus prove about who God is and what he is about? By taking our place on the cross, Jesus justified us. That is, he made us right with God by his grace as a gift, Paul says. He proved that God is just, meaning nothing is swept under the rug. Sin must be paid for. I mean, because if God wasn't just, then he really couldn't expect anybody else or demand anything demand anything from anybody but he also proved and that he died in our place while we were still sinners 
that he's gracious, that God is gracious. And so God's grace and God's justice are not at odds. God is gracious. Here's my point. Because Jesus proved that God is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. Because Jesus proved that God is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. We didn't have to prove ourselves worthy to God for him to give us his son. And listen, not only did he not have to do that, not only did you not have to prove yourself, but you couldn't have anyways. Right? I couldn't have. We know that we couldn't have. And neither could anybody else. Nobody else in this room could do it. We're all sinners and deserve nothing but death. But Jesus, he proved that God is gracious. And so you don't have to prove yourself to God. And you certainly don't have to prove yourself to others. And please, this is something I often try to do, but we don't need to prove ourselves to ourselves. Right? God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself. This is for those of us who struggle with feelings of inadequacy. Maybe the temptation is to allow feelings of inadequacy to paralyze you. So you can't take any action because of the fear that it'll only prove that you really are inadequate. So you don't move. You can't do anything. Or maybe there's a temptation to talk yourself up more, overly, too much, in order to compensate for how adequate you actually feel. So you try to present yourself as another version, a better version than you actually think you are. There's a temptation to do that. Maybe you just can't let yourself off the hook. Or maybe you can't let others off the hook. But listen, God is gracious. Jesus came and lived and died and was buried and was resurrected to prove it, that God is gracious so you don't have to prove yourself. We remember this when the world's closing in on you, when your own inadequacy tempts you to doubt that the gospel matters in the everyday stuff of life, when you're driving home from Columbia feeling inadequate, and you remember that I don't have to prove myself, but God is gracious. Or when it feels like he's distant and you need him in the car, God is gracious. When the world's closing in on you and your own inadequacy tempts you to doubt that the gospel matters in the everyday stuff of life, the good news changes everything about every day. When you're believing the lie, when you're believing the lie that you need to prove yourself to God, others, or yourself, what are some of the sinful behaviors that result? We need to answer those questions. It's, that's a question that's in the bulletin. I didn't write it. When you're believing the lie that you need to prove yourself to God, what are some of the, to God, yourself, or others, what are some of the sinful behaviors that result? So the challenge with this first G and, and how to practice it is just to prayerfully think through that, discuss it with your community, get armed and ready so that when you are tempted, you remember that God is gracious so you don't have to prove yourself. You look back to the cross, you look back to the resurrection of Jesus, not just so that you can go to heaven, not just so you can like say, yeah, it happened, so I believe. No, like go back there, say that means God is gracious, Jesus proved it, and that has implications on where I am right now, and it changes everything. The second G is God is good. God is good. When I hear this, the second one, I immediately think of Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
but we're asking the question today of how the good news of the person and work of Jesus, that is the gospel, proves that God is in fact good. I know that there's an invitation to taste and see that he's good, but we're saying that Jesus proved that he's good. Do you remember the piece of the story that we've just gone through in Matthew over the last couple weeks where Jesus is in the garden praying? He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, and he asks the Father for another way out, but he's also determined to follow him all the way to the cross. And he's also committed to bearing the full wrath of God on behalf of sinners um, and for sin. But this later in in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, this is just after that Hall of Fame Fame faith chapter, uh, it says this. And this is to us Christians. Let us also lay aside every weight. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus in the garden knew that God is good and that there's nothing more satisfying than God. And by enduring the cross all the way to death and being resurrected, Jesus proved that God is good. See, in my own wisdom and probably in our own wisdom, any other way would seem more satisfying in the moment. Any other way but the cross seems more satisfying. But on the other side of the cross and the burial, there was a resurrection when Jesus was raised to glory. And there was reconciliation between God and sinners in the sinners that he loves dearly. And so Jesus knew in the garden that God was good and that what he was doing would be more satisfying than any other option he could come up with. God is good. Jesus proved that God is good. Here's the point. Jesus proved that God is good, so we don't need to look elsewhere for satisfaction. When you are believing the lie that ultimate satisfaction is found in things other than God, what do you tend to turn to? in your bulletin. When you're believing the lie that ultimate satisfaction is found in things that are other than God, what do you tend to turn to? Is it things? Is it food? Is it money? Uh, A new car? A new house? A new city? New career? New hobby? What about another person? Could you be looking to your spouse or your children or your friends or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or somebody else to satisfy you? When you look anywhere else for satisfaction, you've just done nothing but create an idol. You said, God's not good enough. He's not all satisfying. He doesn't know what's really good. I'll go get it somewhere else. Paul says in Romans 7.15, he says this. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. We're all in the same boat, right? I mean, the truth is that we know that we can't even trust ourselves and know that we won't do what's really good for ourselves. It's like when I'm committed to eating healthy because I know that eating healthy is good for me, that that's actually good long-term, it's good, but then I eat a gallon of chips and salsa, right? Not good. I can't be trusted. You know, and I know that we cannot be trusted even for our own good, and we can echo what Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. So the gospel, 
That's the good news of the person and work of Jesus proclaims through his life, through his death, his resurrection, his burial, and his ascension. It speaks to our everyday feelings of dissatisfaction. It calls us to believe that there is absolutely nothing more satisfactory and good than God. So we don't have to look elsewhere. There's nothing more satisfying. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. When you feel When you feel dissatisfied and you're tempted to believe that the story of Jesus on the tree and his resurrection has nothing to do with today's dissatisfaction. When you're tempted to believe that all that has nothing to do with your dissatisfaction right now. Remember this before you look, look elsewhere. That God is good. Remember the invitation of the psalmist to taste and see that the Lord is good. Remember that Jesus proved it to be so. So that you... And I, looking to Jesus, can run the race set before you daily, finding ultimate joy and satisfaction in God, who's good. God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. The third G is this. It says God is great. It's one that we can throw around in that dinner prayer. You know, God is good, God is great. Let us thank him for our food. Do we know what that means? What does it mean for God to be great? We've emphasized several times as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew how the cross didn't just happen to Jesus, right? He set course for it. He foretold it. He got on the road and went to Jerusalem, and he took his disciples with him. And then at the Last Supper, he said, it's about to happen. Here's how it's going to go down. Now let's go. It didn't just happen to Jesus. He set course for it. Jesus foretold his death and resurrection several times throughout his time with the disciples. And one of my my favorite demonstrations of how in control Jesus was throughout the events leading up to his crucifixion is actually found in the Gospel of John. And it's in, uh, it's in John 18, verse 4 through 6. Just check this out. This is crazy control. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, this is the mob is coming to get him from the garden, right? And Judas is betraying him. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's always just struck me. Like, what? There's a mob with like armed soldiers coming to get him. And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And they just fall backwards. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he just says it and they fall to the ground. Who was the greatest in that scene? Who's the greatest? That arm, the armed soldiers or the word of God? Another one of my favorites is in John also. It's in, uh, in chapter 12, verse 20 through 23. You can just listen to this also. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What? (laughs) I mean, if I was Philip and Andrew, I would have been probably like, "Um, okay, Jesus, that's great. But anyways, these guys want to see you, like I said, these people, these Greeks. We want to see. It's a weird response. That's all I'm saying. But Jesus proves that God is great 
And not only is he in control of what's happening at the time, but he has orchestrated all of history for such a time as this, when the Gentiles are ripe for the spread of the fame of God. You see, they were ready to listen. They were ready to meet Jesus. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's work of saturating the earth with his glory is about to be propelled to the ends of the earth. God's in control. God is great. He's the greatest. God is great. So you don't have to be in control. Maybe when the gospel seems far off, for another time and in another place, you, like me, are tempted to believe that God isn't really in control and that he doesn't even really care about you and where you are, especially not about where you are right at the moment and what you're going through right now. When you're believing the lie that God is not in control and he doesn't care for you, how do you respond when life feels out of control? That's in your bulletin also, right? When you are believing the lie that God is not in control and he doesn't care for you, how do you respond when life feels out of control? Do you then take up and bear the burdens? Do you allow worry and anxiety to overtake you? The answer is yes for many of us, right? Do you bear the burden? Do you allow worry and anxiety to overtake you? How does that affect how you treat others? How does it affect how we treat our spouse or our children? What about your finances? Who gets trusted with your money when you don't believe he cares or is in control? Does it mean you can't be generous? Who gets trusted with your future? Who gets trusted with your children's future? And how does that cause you to take control? If you don't believe that God is truly great and that his greatness matters for you today and he's greater than all the things of today, then how do you deal with that? How do you try to take control? God is great. So you don't have to take control. Listen, the gospel, I'm going to say it again, the gospel That's the story of Jesus' intentional incarnation, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. It proves that God, from forever and into eternity, is great and is in complete control. There's nothing that has power over God. Do you remember in Matthew in our time, this is probably a year ago when we were in the sermon on the mount, it says this in Matthew 6, 25 through 33. Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds, look at the birds of the air. They, they neither soar, I mean, sow nor reap, nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, this is such a good question, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. He just told us what's great. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
God is great. So you don't have to be in control. You don't have to be in control of what you'll wear. You don't have to be in control of what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Even today, in the everyday stuff of life, there's nothing that God is not in control of. God is great. He's greater than all these things. And you don't have to take control. And then there's this fourth and, and last G. And we'll wrap up. And this last one is that God is glorious. God is glorious. We just sang it. He said that he was the glorious king. God is glorious. Jesus stood in front of the chief priests and the elders. He faced Pontius Pilate. And he was mocked by the crowds and by everybody else on his way to the cross. In Matthew 27, 27 through 31, which we just went through over the last week or so, says this. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. They mocked him. He stood in the face of the powers of be and in the face of the crowds and they mocked him and they spit on him and they hurt him. But Jesus proved that God was glorious. Jesus proved that God was most glorious and that their opinions, their judgments, their indictments, their brutality, it held no weight when compared with the glory of God. Jesus feared nobody. Jesus feared nothing. Jesus set course for the cross, and he went because God is glorious. He endured, and through his death and resurrection, he proved that God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. See, I think the temptation for most of us is to ignore the glory of God. Maybe it's something we just don't really wrap our heads around. So we kind of ignore the glory of God, and maybe we even ignore the word glory, like I said, because we don't totally get it. I think the temptation also is to use God for our own glory. We've talked about that several times through Matthew, is that we would use Jesus for our own glory, that we'd use God for our own glory. So we ignore the glory of God. We don't spend time dealing with the glory of God or considering the glory of God. And the temptation is for us then just to use God for our own glory and not even really come to terms with that. But we want to be known. We want our name to be weighty. We want to be famous. We want to leave a legacy. Maybe not everybody wants like fame as like being, you know, a rock star. But we want people to know our name. And we want people to know our name when we're gone. We want to leave a legacy. We want our own glory. And if if you're out for your own name and your own glory, listen, if you're out for your own name and for building up your own glory, how can you stand to be mocked? How can the opinions of others not hold weight and inform your every move? Because you need to be known to them and you need to be famous 
for them in, with them. Your name needs to hold weight with them. How can their opinions not hold weight? How could you stand and be mocked? Listen to this quote from the Gospel Basics series. It says, When I don't believe God is glorious and the one whose opinions are weightier than anyone else's, I will end up listening to others and following others' advice. I will give in to peer pressure and live a life that looks just like everyone else in the culture. If I believe God is glorious, I will listen to him and I will walk in his ways. Believing God is glorious is essential for transformation and we see his glory most clearly in the gospel that Jesus is Lord of all, over all, and worthy of our love and devotion. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. So in the day-to-day, when you encounter the tension between the glories of the world and the glories of God, when you're tempted to fear others, or even to give others glory in some like twisted, weird attempt to gain glory for yourself, remember this. Others and yourself will wield their, their little bit of glory that they get in this world only to benefit themselves. And you would wield any little bit of worldly glory that you could obtain to prop yourself up above others. But Jesus gave up his glory. He stepped into the form of man. He lived, died, was buried, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father to glorify God and to raise you and I up with him into the glory of the Father. He leveraged his glory for your glory. He leveraged his glory for the glory of the Father, for the glory of God, and for your glory as well, to bring you in with him. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Before Jesus, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. And God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. In closing, I just want to share this last verse. It's the verse I shared at the beginning. It's from Hebrews 11, 1 through 2. It just says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. My hope this morning is that as we step away from this season of remembering the death and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, that we might see that what Jesus did was to prove who God is and what he's about, so that we might live in faith daily, in the here and now, And we'd be assured of all the things hoped for, which is really, we'd be assured of an eternity of restored, right relationship with our God. But faith is for the here and now. The gospel's for the here and now. I would just encourage you to like, take this bulletin home, memorize these four G's. They're just easy, and it'll help us become more able in the moment, to remember the gospel and how it applies. Talk over with your community, your missional community, your family. Deal with some of the questions. Answer them so that others know how to remind you of the gospel when you need it. We're going to move into a time of response as we do each week. And uh, the the musicians will come and they'll lead us uh, in some more time of 
worship through song. And uh, it's a time where we can sit and we can reflect, we can stand and we can just worship God for who he is, that he's, that he's gracious, that he's good, that he's great, and that he's glorious. We can respond to that. Um, and as they come, we're going to enter also into a time of prayer. There'll be people in the back who can, who can pray for you if, you if you'd like that. They'll have uh, orange badges on and they, you know, they'll pray with you for about anything. So you can talk to somebody and, and talk over some of these things and you can pray. Just pray that you know the gospel and that you can see how the gospel interacts with the everyday stuff of life. Also during this time, we're going to take offering, uh, tithes and offerings. We just leave it back there. We leave a tithing basket in the back, an offering basket in the back where you can drop in whatever. And this is an act of worship. This is an act of remembering. He can be trusted, right? God is great, so we don't have to be in control. And we're going to enter into a time of communion. We do this every week where we come down this middle aisle, we'll go each way and we'll be served the bread and the wine and the juice. You'll take the bread, you'll dip it in the wine and the juice. And as we do this, we're remembering that Christ gave his body for us, that he gave his blood for us. And in so doing, he proved that God is who he said he is, that he's done what he said he would do, that he's gone out for our salvation. And so he can be trusted with everything in our life, with all areas of life. So we can submit to him. And so when we come up, we proclaim that that's true. We proclaim it to one another. We remind ourselves and each other of the gospel. And we proclaim it to those who don't know him. So if you're, if you're a Christian, if you can uh, proclaim that truth, we invite you to come and take and eat with us. If you're not a Christian and you can't say that, please don't come and take. But hear what we're saying in our action. God is who he said he is. He's done what he said he would do. And he's gone out for you. And it's not just some... Something in history that you got to come to terms with, it has implications for now and into eternity. And so we invite you to hear that, to grab somebody and pray with them, to talk to somebody about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's move into a time of prayer. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we just thank you for the gospel. I thank you for this time in Matthew. I thank you for this, this time where we've gone through and seen the, the life and the death, the resurrection, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would like work in our hearts and our minds so there wouldn't just be some, some thing that we just kind of acknowledge, but it would, we would see that like it has actual implications for, for our life, that it changes everything, that it actually is good news in every day for us. Would it be more than just a story that we can say, yeah, fine, that's true. It's not just a fairy tale. Because we, if, we, if we say it like that, then it's, we don't really believe that it's true. If it's true, it matters for us today. Teach us about who you are. Teach us that you can be trusted, that you're gracious, that you're good, that you're great, that you're glorious. And let us experience the freedom that is found in following Jesus Christ and a right relationship with you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.